Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians this evening. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, at least the second letter that God chose for us to have. Evidence, as we've said in the series, that Paul wrote multiple letters to Corinth. At least four, maybe five. Well, God gave us two of them. And so we're continuing our study in the second one tonight, 2 Corinthians. And we'll look at the second chapter and read verses 1 through 11. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Brothers, sisters, this is God's word. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let me pray for us. Lord God in heaven, thank you for your people that you've given here at Roebuck and our fellowship in Christ and around your word. Thank you for a love for it and interest in your word. And so we come here tonight because we long for you to teach us. So help us understand the scriptures better. There's a real joy when we understand how they all hold together. And of course, make us doers of the word. Our gathering tonight, not merely to learn or an intellectual exercise, but to be shaped by your spirit speaking through the word. So do that for us, and again, thank you for all who participate in the work of the ministry here, all the hands that go into running the work here and just getting things done, all the volunteers and others. We're very thankful, and bless now this time for our refreshment and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're picking up here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight, and tonight's passage, the second chapter, occurs in the middle of a larger section where Paul explains why he changed his plans to visit Corinth. He had previously expressed to them that he planned to visit them twice on his way to Macedonia, going once up the way through the country and then back again on his way to Judea. But painful interactions with the Corinthians caused him to change these plans. And he feared that if he visited the Corinthians without these issues being resolved, it would only cause further pain. And so Paul makes the decision not to visit the Corinthians. And he's tried to explain to them in the previous chapter that decision doesn't arise from a lack of integrity. It doesn't come from a lack of commitment to the Corinthians. Rather, it's a strategic ministry decision. And it's one that's designed for their good. 
And so as we resume making our way through the passage tonight, Paul continues to elaborate on this strategic decision, that this goal of avoiding a painful visit. And once he said a little bit more about that, then he actually tries to push in and resolve one of the painful situations before going on to explain further the reason for his change in plan. So let's continue our exploration of 2 Corinthians, and we'll learn a few things about forgiveness and life in the body along the way by considering these further reasons why Paul changed his travel plans. It's going to give us several, but we'll just look at two tonight. And I'm going to phrase them in terms of what Paul was trying to accomplish and how we might apply that wisdom in our own life. So here's the first thing we learned from Paul. One, don't make a bad situation worse. He says in verse 1, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Paul was concerned that another visit would aggravate an already painful situation. And when he says he made up his mind, that communicates the idea of using good judgment, coming to a decision after thinking matters through carefully. Again, Paul's not wishy-washy. He's not hiding anything. He's just trying to make a good judgment call here. And so Paul thought about the situation. He weighed it out, and he decided the best course of action would be to postpone the visit. Paul made a decision that would disappoint them. That's a good lesson for us, right? Sometimes you have to make decisions that you know will disappoint other people, but they're still the best decision for you and for them. That is what Paul did in this situation. He had just said at the end of the previous chapter, I work for your joy. So if another visit just means distress In pain, then that would go against Paul's larger goals. In fact, if you notice from the opening reading, Paul refers in verses 3 and 4 to distress, tears, anguish. These are the experiences he's had with the Corinthians, experiences that leave one emotionally spent. And so in the face of just more relational conflict and more possible tension, Paul decides, I'm just going to wait a little longer before visiting again. And he elaborates on that in verse 2 where he says, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I grieved? He's trusting that with a little more time, the Corinthians will come around and they'll amend their ways. And then the two parties together can heal and they can move on from this former painful visit. I mean, if he visits and he's trying to fix this thing and they're not ready for that, then that will only cause further pain. And their pain will cause Paul pain. Again, sometimes we're tempted, aren't we, just just to press in and, and fix these things. And Paul says, you know what, in this instance, it might be better just to wait and let people have a chance to come around. And not only that, but according to verse 3, Paul has already tried to tell them this in the severe letter he wrote them. He writes, I wrote as I did, So that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. In the letter that came right before this one, so one of the letters we no longer possess, Paul was trying to tell them, look, 
if I visit you and, and things haven't been worked out, then, then things are only going to get worse. So I think he was trying to tell them, we've had this draining experience, hinting at maybe it wouldn't be good for me to visit you twice. But, you know, maybe they missed that detail in all of the hurt feelings and all the tension. But regardless, at this point, you know, the Corinthians can bring Paul sadness or joy. They can bring one or the other. And he doesn't want to risk sadness. He wants to give them that chance to come around. And as we just saw in this verse, he's confident that they will, that eventually there will be healing, there will be unity, there will be commonality, and there will be joy. And after all, as verse 4 says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of of my love for you. Basically, Paul is saying, you know, if this letter I had to send you, this severe letter, if that's as difficult as it was to write those things, how much more painful would a visit be? Paul says, I wrote you that letter from a place of deep turmoil, a broken heart. I wept as I wrote to you through a flood, or we might even render it through a curtain of tears. But Paul is trying to assure them, now, I I didn't write to distress you. In other words, it wasn't out of retaliation. You know, we had this problem, and so now I'm going to write and punish you. I I wrote so that you would know my great love for you. I mean, ironically, interestingly, if anything, these conflicts have only increased his love for them. And so Paul is hopeful that, you know, if you give time for that letter to do its work, he had this painful visit. And then he wrote this letter saying, that didn't go well, we need to fix some things. And if he gives that letter time to do its work, then he's hopeful that everyone will heal and come around. So that's why he's waiting to visit. Let's just let things run their course. And when Paul does that, this isn't mere pragmatism. This is Paul modeling the gospel. This is Paul saying, hey, I have authority. I'm an apostle. I established your church. But I'll only use it when it's needed. And I'll only use it for the good of others. And in that, he is like the one God we serve. We, we serve a mighty God, the supreme God. But what do we see in Jesus? One who is humble, who serves his disciples, who washes their feet, who died to save us, who can defeat all the powers of evil, but deals gently with his children. That's what Paul's trying to model here in these wise, strategic interactions with the Corinthians. So don't make a bad situation worse whenever you're trying to see healing in a family or a church or in other relationships. Secondly, forgive those who cause pain. Now, coming here into verses 5 through 11, Paul begins to address one of the particular situations that caused him pain in his interactions with the Corinthians. He will speak of one who has caused grief in verse 5 and has received a punishment inflicted on him by the majority in verse 6. However, Paul has forgiven him, verse 10, and the time has come for the Corinthians to forgive and comfort this person as well. That's just kind of a a big idea of what verses 5 through 11 are about. But let's answer this question as we begin to consider those verses. Who is this offending person and what did they do? 
Now, traditionally, this person has been identified with the incestuous person of 1 Corinthians 5, if you're familiar with the previous letter. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to someone who is sleeping with his father's wife. And if that makes us blush, Paul even says, look, that situation is so scandalous, not even the pagans tolerate it. That's a no-no in the, in the larger society that wasn't exactly known for their robust morals. But apparently the Corinthians have done nothing about it. It's, it's known and things are going on like usual. And, and so Paul admonishes them, hey, you need to practice church discipline. You need to remove this offending person from the Christian assembly until they repent. And Jesus gives us a process for that in the Gospels. You're probably familiar with that, a one-on-one talk, and then bringing some folks with you to, tr- to try to get this person to see the error of their ways, and then taking it to the elders of the church and the assembly as a whole. Paul says, you know what, that should have happened, and since it hasn't, I can just go right to the end and say, you need to remove this person from the assembly until they repent. Well, when we come here to 2 Corinthians, we read read of Paul saying, okay, the time has come to restore this offending person. And because of that, many people have connected the two passages. They've understood them as referring to the same situation. Now, again, if that's the conclusion that you or others come to, there's nothing wrong with that. That works, in which Paul deals with a person who needs discipline And then says they've repented, now restore them. The general idea still works. However, there are a few details that indicate Paul is actually addressing a different situation here in 2 Corinthians 2. And I want you to notice those details. He says in verse 5, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me, as he has grieved all of you to some extent. So notice what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see. He wants them to realize that this person's offense is not merely against Paul, but against the whole congregation. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has all of you. Friends, I want you to realize this isn't just something that's happened to me personally. This is actually something that's happened to the whole church. Well, that doesn't seem to fit the picture of Paul addressing an issue of public incest. That would not be a personal offense. That would be a situation involving the whole church. And so Paul, while he tries to get the church in 1 Corinthians to deal with it, it is a situation that is rather obviously a whole church situation, not some kind of personal slight to Paul. Second, Paul is delicate in trying to help the Corinthians see this. He says at the end of verse 5, not to put it too severely. In other words, hey, he hasn't offended me. He's offended all of you, and I don't want to put that too severely. Paul is being delicate. Hey, don't get offended when I tell you this, but this is actually a larger situation than just some kind of personal problem. Well, again, that delicacy is the very opposite of what we read in 1 Corinthians 5. There he's like, hey, Corinthians, what's your problem? Wake up. Deal with this situation. Don't you see how serious it is? And lastly, Paul seems to almost downplay the severity of the incident in the middle of verse 10. 
where he writes, And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. You notice that phrase, if there was anything to forgive? That certainly doesn't match the severity of 1 Corinthians 5. This sounds much more like the language when a person has been personally offended, but he's going to forgive it, and he wants everyone else to do so as well. And he's basically saying, hey, you know what? It's no big deal. It's a no big deal because I've forgiven it. So why don't the rest of you come around and do so as well? And so that's what I've been saying throughout these messages, that during the painful visit, someone opposed Paul. Someone did something against the apostle, challenging his authority or embarrassing him or doing something that was inappropriate, and the congregation did nothing about it. That reconstruction makes sense in light of what we've just said, and we will see a few few more details to support that as we go through the verses. So now let's look at that paragraph verse by verse. Paul writes in verse 5, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Okay, so the Corinthians at first did not experience grief at what happened to Paul. Paul wanted them to realize that it did affect them. Now, what I want you to realize is he may be rehearsing some of what he wrote in the painful letter. He may be revisiting that topic where in the lost letter he is trying to get them to realize this person who offended me, this person who who was wrong towards me, has affected the whole church. Later in this letter, in 2 Corinthians 7, he will refer to their godly sorrow. So that indicates that they have realized their error in this situation and they have, uh, they have realized that they mishandled it. So Paul is kind of going back and saying, okay, let's rehearse what happened here. You mishandled the situation, but now the new information I've gotten is letting me realize that you've actually dealt with it. That gains traction from verse 6, where Paul says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So in other words, you needed to realize that he hadn't so much wronged me, he wronged all of you. But now you have realized that because you experienced godly sorrow and you have inflicted a punishment on him. Now Paul doesn't directly identify the punishment, but when he admonishes them in verse 7 to forgive and comfort, that suggests it was some kind of withdrawal of fellowship. So that's why I'm again saying, whether we know the specifics or not, kind of the big idea still works. There was a problem in the church, and they dealt with it. They, they, they withdrew fellowship. Again, specifically what that looks like, we're just not told. Now, by the way, that phrase, the punishment inflicted by the majority. Now, my Baptist friends appeal to this phrase as an example of congregational authority, the majority of the congregation agree to discipline the offender. It doesn't say, they point out to me, the majority of the elders. Okay, maybe. 
What the text doesn't say is exactly who or what this majority is. It doesn't say the majority of the elders. It doesn't say the majority of the congregation. It just says the majority. And that could be a majority of elders. Now, if that sounds like special pleading, it could be that the majority of the church cooperated with the punishment which was recommended or even handed down by the leaders. The text doesn't give us all those details. Again, it doesn't tell us who the majority is or how they came to their decision or whether leadership was involved. But it does say that this punishment was inflicted by the majority. And interesting, by the way, if there was a majority, what does that mean there was also? A minority. So Paul is still dealing with a church that maybe is not 100% on board with his recommendations. Not everyone supported this, but thankfully the majority did. And so regardless of those details, the main reason Paul refers to this punishment is to say that its time has now come to an end. Verse 7, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. All right, there was a problem. You needed to see it was not just a problem for me. It was a problem for all of you. Based on some other things Paul says, we think they've seen that, and they've inflicted this punishment. But the point isn't to say, yeah, good job, you punished. The point is to say, okay, now is the time to forgive. The punishment was necessary because that's a problem, and if not dealt with, it's going to harm the whole church. But it's been dealt with. So now let's forgive and comfort. And interestingly, by the way, the word that Paul uses for forgive here, it's not the common term translated forgive in the Greek New Testament. It's a word that communicates the idea of giving something graciously. The word that's translated grace is part of the verb here. To give something graciously, to give something freely as a favor, to cancel the debt. Paul is saying, extend grace to one another, especially to this person who did wrong. And when you extend grace, it will fortify them. Paul says it will, it will uh, forgive and comfort them. And comfort is sometimes translated encourage. You get the idea of, of lift one's spirits. But it can even have a little more than that. Not just the spirits are lifted, but the person is actually fortified. By forgiving, you're making them a better person. They're not merely feeling better, but they're actually strengthened to act in the right way. Why is forgiveness so important? Paul says if you withhold it, that person could be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so while Paul never directly says the offender has repented, I think we could safely assume it here. They have felt a certain degree of sorrow, and that sorrow has led them to take appropriate actions. And when people take the actions to repent, Paul says we ought to forgive, lest they are overwhelmed with sorrow. Now, we could translate it as, or the idea is you don't want them to drown in a sea of remorse. One of the preachers of, of hundreds of years ago, John Chrysostom, writes, reveal your, on this passage, reveal your friendship as certain, unshakable, 
fervent, ardent, and fiery. Present your love with the same strength as the previous hatred. And so Paul says, all right, they've repented. So therefore, verse 8, reaffirm your love for them. And Paul goes on to say in verse 9, another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. So again, maybe he's referring back to the letter that he previously wrote. He, in that letter, encouraged the Corinthians to address the problem. And he was eager to see if they would obey him. Again, some in the congregation were not acknowledging his apostolic authority. Now he knows they have. He knows that a punishment has been inflicted. And so referring back to what he wrote in verse 9 is how he ramps up to verse 10, where he writes, Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Again, restore, forgive the offender. I've forgiven him. And so, Corinthians, just like it was good for you to realize that when he wronged me, he wronged all of you, and just as it was good for you to correct him as I admonished you to do, now it will be good, essential, for you to forgive and restore him. And why? Because in the final verse, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. When you forgive that works against Satan's agenda of exploiting the church of Jesus Christ. When Paul writes that we don't want him to outwit us, it's the idea of cheat or exploit. Satan will harm the church if they fail to forgive those who repent. So friends, this is really just an admonition to help us get the balance right. We may think of failing to do church discipline as an opportunity for the devil. Or, or maybe if you fail to help someone, you see a problem in their life, you really want to help them out, and you're afraid if, if I fail to do so, the devil will get an opportunity. Well, according to 1 Corinthians 5, that is true. If the church didn't deal with the incestuous person, that was bad for the church. There was spiritual harm there. But Paul also says that failing to forgive, failing to restore, being overbearing in correction, and making them walk a long way back to restoration, that is also an opportunity for the devil to harm the church of Jesus Christ. It could produce excessive sorrow. It could give an opportunity for the devil to cheat the church. And Paul wouldn't want to see that happen to the people of God. So once again, Paul, faced with conflict, faced with, with, with upsetting interactions, painful visits, painful letters, painful situations, nonetheless says this, let's not make a bad situation worse and let's forgive because that is the way to heal and to keep the forces of the enemy at bay. So let's pray for wisdom and grace to do that in all of our lives. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ who forgives us of all of our sins. Make us a people characterized by forgiveness. And give us the wisdom that we see on display in Paul here. We, we can think of probably a lot of situations in our lives where there's conflict or potential conflict. Maybe conflict we haven't dealt well with in the past. But, but Lord, you give us here a, a very wise example 
of how through humility and patience and love and forgiveness, uh, people can grow and, and rifts can be healed and good things can happen and the devil can be pushed back by the forgiveness of Christians and especially in the local assembly. So would you just give us the wisdom to see where and how we could do that in church, in our lives, in our workplace, just help us to go out of here uh, to be the kind of people who embody this aspect of the gospel. Forgive us for where we don't do it well and help us to do it for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's sing as our final hymn. Hymn 334, Breathe on Me, Breath of God. Hymn 334, you can stand, we'll sing all four verses, hymn 334.